week's Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, and Murray Hunt. Uh, sadly, no Philippa Kaufman today, but we are joined by Helen Mantfield QC, who, in addition to being one of the great public law QCs, is also principal of Mansfield College, Oxford, which is increasingly becoming one of the world's great human rights hubs, not least because it's home to the Bonavera Institute of Human Rights. Uh, all our episodes have been about the various ways that government responses to the COVID-19 crisis, both here and abroad, are creating challenges to the rule of law and human rights. A constant theme of the pods has been the extent to which people are prepared to give up their fundamental rights when they're frightened. Uh, how governments might seek to exploit the crisis to consolidate, consolidate power and increase a lack of accountability. Now, today's discussion very much continues in this vein, but examines it through the lens of a more modern human right, namely the right to privacy, in a much more contemporary context. The exploitation of, of data generated by our use of technology, be it our phones, our computers or our tablets. And we're having this discussion now because of the increasing belief of some that in the absence of a vaccine, one of the most effective ways out of the lockdown might be the use of data tracking, whereby the state will not only follow those diagnosed with COVID, but anyone they've been in contact with. We're going to start this discussion by putting it in a pre-COVID context, because of the use of data by both the state and the private sector was already becoming a very hot topic in human rights circles. And this included concerns about the activities of big data companies, such as Facebook, in tracking our every movement on the web in order to sell us stuff, as well as the misuse of data by companies such as Cambridge Analytica, trying to influence our behaviour, including how we might vote or who we might hate. And equally before the crisis, there was a real concern in the United Kingdom about how our security services were unlawfully obtaining and using bulk data. Indeed, it's the subject of repeated legal challenge before the UK's own spy courts, otherwise known as the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. And yet, despite all of this, it seems as though the very technology that's been causing human rights activists' concerns might be a really effective tool for combating the spread of COVID and permit its management until such time as a vaccine is discovered. Indeed, no lesser figure than Dr. Anthony Fauci has called technology a public health weapon. In countries such as South Korea and Taiwan, the authorities have been using location data from people's phones to identify all of those who, who have been in close vicinity of a person diagnosed with COVID in order that they can be isolated before they infect others. Indeed, the technology permits whole chains of people who came into contact with a diagnosed patient or indeed endless chains of people who came into contact with a person who came into a contact to be identified and quarantined. Of course, this form of contact tracing has long been a feature of public health, but in an old-fashioned way. Doctors would sit down with those diagnosed with, say, TB or HIV and discuss who they may have been in relevant contact with and then try and track those people down. A slow and inefficient task, but even when it identified contacts, might do long after they'd in turn infected many others. But this technology offers at least the promise of doing those tasks in fractions of seconds and with greater far greater efficacy. So this is obviously a subject of great interest to the UK public health authorities and also to the data companies who advise them or would like to advise them. And we want to explore not just the benefits that the technology might bring, but what the dangers and downsides might be. Are we, in a rush to get out of our houses, going to agree to solutions without realising there's a serious price tag when it comes to infringements of our civil liberties? 
to what degree can law or should law provide a means for balancing the benefits that technology could bring with its dangers and how could that be achieved? Now, data is always a topical subject, but particularly so this week, a week in which the Israeli Supreme Court has held that the, their internal security services, the Shin Bet, uh, were unlawfully using data tracking and could only be used in future if that power was enshrined it by the Knesset, their parliament. Now, here to guide us through these issues, not least explaining some of the technology to a Luddite such as me, is our guest, Corey Crider, who's in the perfect position to help us understand the, cha the challenges that the technology brings from a human rights perspective. Corey is a US qualified lawyer and the co-founder of Foxglove, an NGO created to address the threat of the misuse of data and mass data collection. Prior to Foxglove, Corey was for many years the legal director of Reprieve, where she oversaw a huge range of high-profile inter international litigation, at not only at Guantanamo Bay, but also cases arising out of the CIA Extraordinary Rendition Programme. And as anyone who has ever met Corey knows, she is an absolutely fearless defender of human rights. Corey, we're delighted you can join us. Perhaps we can start by context and putting this in the pre-COVID era, insofar as any of us can remember that far back, it seems like years, even though it's still only weeks. And can you just describe for us what the concerns were and the increasing concerns were in the human rights community about the misuse of data? And I, I, I wonder if you can describe that both in respect of what corporations, the big data companies were doing, uh, and also the state. That's very nice of you, Richard, because having worked with you for many, many years on a case against the MI6 and the government called Bell Hush, actually what you should have said was that I was a complete pain in the ass. Uh, but anyway, since you, were much, since you were much too nice to say so. So I, I think if we're talking about concerns with corporate surveillance, obviously it boils down to, in a, in a phrase, Cambridge Analytica. And in, if you're thinking about state surveillance, we're talking about the world after Edward Snowden. Um, and let's start with the state side, because you picked up an important point about contact tracing and, and the Israeli courts recently, which is basically, uh, there's a kind of ick factor at the moment that people had uh, over whether the Shin Bet, the Israeli security services, should be involved in contact tracing. And over here in the UK, there's a really lively debate about contact tracing. Will it work? In what circumstances? Um, who should do it, and what should it look like? Should there be a centralized store in the government of everybody's communications versus a kind of privacy-preserving system, such as what Google and Apple are doing? Uh, but for those of us who were looking at state surveillance for many, many years, you kind of think, well, isn't this just an extended exercise in second sourcing? Because GCHQ already have the vast majority of the capabilities that we're hoping to get people to sign up to with the app, right? Um, if you think about the GCHQ's uh, bulk communications data uh, powers, for example, they already have the power to have what's called the social graph, everybody who talks to everybody all of the time, so they know who you, who you speak to. They have location data. Now, they don't have it at the super granular level that we hope to get out of Bluetooth-based contact tracing, but they do have where you go. Um, they have what you search for in the internet. So potentially GCHQ already know if you've Googled, have I got the Rona? Or if you uh, went to the NHS 111 website. Um, they also have, through Bulk Intercept, they actually have a significant amount of the contents of your communications. And then through Bulk Personal Datasets, uh, the third of their kind of big flagship capabilities, They've got access to other massive data sets. 
So I guess the question that kind of arises, well, why bother? Why, why bother if, if GCHQ has arguably already got most of the capabilities? And I think, I think there are kind of two reasons that the, the, the state would want to bother. One is, as I say, the ick factor, right? None of us really want to be getting an SMS from GCHQ saying, we think possibly you might have it, so kindly shelter in place for a couple of weeks. Um, as we saw in Israel, that tends to creep people out. Um, and, and then two, I suppose there's a, there is this hope that getting Bluetooth involved will be that little bit more specific and more useful to the human contact tracers uh, than mobile location data. Well, let's come back to the technology and the difference competing technology um, in a second, because that might need some unpacking for those of us who aren't particularly technically savvy. Um, so that's the position in respect of where the state is at and already have an enormous capability then to track track us what about the position in respect to big data and what were the concerns about big data before this kicked off and how is this magnifying those if at all well i mean the reason that we started foxbub in the first place was that we sort of thought well those of us who have been concerned about state surveillance for a while um actually while we were all worried about it kind of in the name of convenience and amazing apps such as google maps without which i can't get anywhere um, and the rest of the suite that uh, Google and Facebook and other companies provide us, uh, we had handed over at least as much uh, personal information about ourselves to a handful of companies out of Silicon Valley. Um, and so that's why you see at the moment in the debate about contact tracing, uh, who's weighing in? You've got states on the one hand, and then you've got some of the world's largest and most valuable corporations on the other side. You've got Google and Apple who together account for functionally all of the world's mobile phone operating systems, right? Like if you don't have an Apple phone, you've got an Android phone pretty much, period. Uh, basically saying, well, we're going to build something that permits uh, certain kinds of contact tracing. And ironically, given that the whole business model of, of Google has been for years mining as much personal data from all of us all of the time, um, it's actually the Google and Apple model that is a bit more protective of people's personal data than what the UK government wants to do at the moment. It's, it's decentralized. It's not putting together in uh, a central Google and Apple server the map of everybody's contacts with everybody else. It's supposed to, that kind of information is supposed to just live on your phone uh, rather than go to a central database. Um, and in terms of the concerns, like why, well, why, why, why would we want, why wouldn't we want a corporation to have a huge amount of really granular information about all of us? I mean, again, going back to Cambridge Analytica, we started to worry about it because we saw that incredibly detailed psychological profiles, for example, uh, were not just made about people, but then sort of sold to the highest bidder to target divisive and incendiary and false political messaging that was used to split people and you know, played a role, we'll never know how big, but a role in giving us the orange tyrant we've got in the White House. Well, let's come back to the orange tyrant um, as often as we possibly can. But before we do that, can um, I just ask you to explain, again, for those of us who aren't um, really on top of it, what, I mean, when we say the data that, um, that the, the companies have on us, what, what is that data? Well... I mean, if you've got a, let's say for, I mean, if you, you can actually download um, your profile from a, from a Facebook or a Google, but um, 
So it will be, but let's, let's take Google, for example, like I use Gmail relatively regularly. So they have um, the, the archive of every email that I've ever sent. They have, because I use Google Maps to get around, they have my location data. Uh, there was a New York Times study that showed that Google actually, for many, many years, was tracking people's location as they moved about the world, um, even when you had switched it off. Even for those handful of us who were privacy conscious enough to have like told us, no, please don't track the location, they're just doing it anyway. Um, they have Because they are, of course, the search engine that everybody uses, they know what you have searched for and what you're wondering, and therefore, to a very significant extent, what your thoughts and anxieties are. Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, put it pretty tellingly in a panel a few years ago. He says, you know, uh, we know who you talk to. We know where you've been. To a, to a certain extent, we can even know what you're thinking about, right? I mean, it is, it is, as, it is close to the kind of all-seeing, all-knowing as, really, uh, as we've ever really encountered in history. And, of course, that's, that's ever more the case now that the tech platforms aren't just a window on the world, but because we're those lucky of us enough to be able to work from home or shut in our homes, they are the window on the world, right? So, so the question about the amount of data power that they've aggregated, I think, is, is even sharper now that we're totally reliant on them to access the internet. Then you've got Chrome, the browser. You've got Android, which, as I say, accounts for, you know, kind of 90% globally of the world's mobile operating systems. And all of these things are fed back in. Uh, to, to Google's vast data stores. So they've got really, truly comprehensive information about global populations. Okay, so they've got that. The um, security services here, and presumably in lots of other countries, um, also have an enormous amount uh, of data on it. Um, of course, from a human rights perspective, that's troubling, but how we now, can we, how can that now be utilised in the public health context, I mean, we've seen in South Korea and Taiwan um, data being used and data tracking being used in a way that has provided a good explanation for why they've had low rates of infection. Can you, could you just describe what's being used there and how they're using it? And then we can turn to how that could be used in the United Kingdom and uh, how we try and regulate that in a way that has some regard to human rights. So what's going on in, in, in South Korea and Taiwan? About the South Korean experience, for example, it's important to remember you can't just app your way out of this crisis. It sits there with a whole bunch of other public health responses that Korea has, right? And of course, they were able to do this and to get kind of vast social compliance because this isn't the first such respiratory pandemic these people have experience of, right? You've got SARS, you've got MERS. Um, and so, so people kind of recognized it in a way that I think governments and societies in the West were much slower to. But anyhow, so what did they do? They didn't just have uh, Bluetooth-based contact tracing, which we'll get to in a minute. They tested between 12 and 20,000 people a day from the beginning. Um, they had a ton, a ton of human contact tracers. And yes, they absolutely did very, very extensive um, social surveillance. So they, so with, with Bluetooth-based phone contact tracing, the way that it works is, you know, I walk around with an app on my phone and if I, and, and it logs who I've been in contact with as in proximity-based, the Bluetooth you know, it's like what you use to connect your speaker to, or indeed the headphones that I'm using to talk to you now. These are Bluetooth on, uh, Bluetooth systems. So, and it's and and the strength of the Bluetooth signal 
uh, is stronger when the two devices are closer to one another. And so it's supposed, in theory, to give you a slightly more granular sense of, of distance, right? Uh, now, I'm only slightly more of a kind of tech-savvy person than you, Richard. You give me too much credit here. But what I, but what I uh, understand is it can help. It's definitely better than mobile phone location data, but it can still be uh, messy. So it's not perfect, right? So one of the criticisms that's been offered of it, um, for example, is that people who live very, very densely together, maybe with porous walls between them, um, so for example, on a tower block, um, they might well register uh, as Bluetooth contacts of one another. Um, they might well be within one another's Bluetooth range, even though, of course, they're not within infectious distance of one another because there's a wall there. Similarly, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't track if somebody's wearing PPE, right? Like you, you, if you've got a mask on and gloves on, your phone doesn't know it. Um, but, but in theory, going back to how it's supposed to work in theory, the devices are supposed to measure people's distance. Um, and if and 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 keep a running but anonymous log uh, in the best systems uh, of of those of those phones that you've been in contact with, not a name ideally, but a kind of hash that gets generated and gets changed. Um, and then if later uh, somebody comes down with coronavirus, not you, but somebody else that your phone was near. Um, and that, that they then register it in an authenticated way onto their app. Uh, then I, having passed by them or sat on the bus with them, uh, theoretically would receive a notice that says, you may have been exposed to someone with the virus. Um, please shelter in place for the next seven days. So it's supposed to be a way to do that. And you can see how, if you think about how the experience of um, engaging with a human contact tracer, how that would look, you can see how it could fill a gap. Because you and I know and would remember who we spoke to in terms of the people that we know and who our friends are, but we're not gonna know or remember who we sat next to on the crowded train carriage, right? So it could theoretically fill a gap there. I think the, the questions become around um, the, so, the unintended social consequences of it, right? Um, we talked about what the problems could be with giving the government a centralized database of everybody's contact. Um, but then there's also what employers are going to start to do, right? Are they going, for example, to require uh, workers to have an app installed on their phone to go to work, uh, things like this? There's a kind of discussion draft of a bill that's been put out by some academics, Lillian Edwards and others, a kind of coronavirus safeguards bill that basically says, you know, um, people shouldn't be uh, penalized for going out of their house without a telephone. They shouldn't be penalized uh, economically for not having the app installed. If you listen to the government right now, um, and this is where, I mean, there's a real dilemma here, and I don't really know how they're going to square it. They say that they don't intend to make uh, installation of the app mandatory, right? They say that they want it to be a voluntary, but at the same time, they say that they want something like uh, between 60 and 80% of the population to install it, uh, which is way, way, way beyond any any installation levels that we've seen with societies that had voluntary uh, apps. Like Trace Together, Singapore, like voluntary, I think they had about 12% uptake. So how they're going to actually achieve the coverage that they need to make it work in the way that they would like it to work, I'm not clear at all. The other question I have is about who's going to take it up and who's going to be left out and what the kind of weird social skewing effects of that could be, right? Because some of us, some of us listening to this podcast may not have that much of an inherent reason to be worried about state surveillance, right? And think, well, my life is pretty boring, you know, like if they want to collect it, more power to them. But, the, but 
if you think about the UK, the people who maybe are least likely to use it um, are communities who have been historically over-policed, um, who do have instinctive and good historic reasons to distrust state surveillance, you know, maybe because they remember something about the Metropolitan Police's gang matrix or Prevent or Windrush. And those kind of paradoxically are the very same communities uh, who are going to be at most risk of bad health, health outcomes from coronavirus. So again, I would just, I don't want to say that we want to take the tool out of our toolkit altogether, but I would just caution us from this glib uh, sense that we're going to be able to app our way out of this problem. So, Corey, we'll come back to the question as to whether this could ever be made mandatory in a way that's acceptable. But just assuming for the moment this is a voluntary process, what are the legal safeguards you think the government could put in place that would give you sufficient comfort? Uh, so assuming that the system is voluntary, uh, which they said it wanted to be, and assuming that the system is decentralised, which I have to say they currently aren't presumed, um, they're pursuing a centralized system, but let's take that to one. Let's take that to one side. You want to be sure. These are old kind of classic um, principles of data protection. But for example, you want to be sure that it can only be collected for a and used for a limited purpose. So in other words, that the information collected is not going to suddenly find its way into immigration enforcement or law enforcement or other purposes that aren't what people opted in for. Uh, you want to be sure that there are very strict limits on sharing of the data. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about trying to join up NHS data, and let's talk about that in a minute. Um, but I think if people, people are probably pretty concerned about the idea that that information is going to go on to a host of other private companies, theoretically, for example, they'd be quite concerned about that. Uh, and you want to be sure that information is not going to be retained uh, for ages and ages and ages, because if it is if it is something as sensitive as, as where you went and who you talked to and who you visited, you don't want a you don't want a long term database of that kind sitting in the hands of well any state state entity. And one of the, so one thing I would just add is the thing one thing that's not clear because they haven't done enough to kind of communicate with the public and to take people with them. It's really not clear how these contact tracing apps are going to fit with this other big uh, health tech project that was announced kind of at the height of the crisis, which is the COVID-19 data store. So the other thing that they're doing is kind of building what is, as far as I can tell, the biggest data lake of kind of patient and hospital data in the NHS's history to create what they're calling a sort of single source of truth about the progress of the pandemic and all kinds of other things that you can see that they would absolutely want, right? Like whether hospitals are lowing, running low on PPE, yes. <laughs> um, you know, the, the kind of flow of patients, um, triage issues, things like this. But, but uh, we don't know, for example, the extent to which uh, the contact data, centralized contact data, contact graph data is uploading uh, to that database. It's particularly concerning because they're not just doing it by themselves within the NHS. They've actually partnered with a whole bunch of massive private corporations to build and run this data store, uh, including some you'll have heard of, like Amazon and Google and Microsoft, and some you haven't heard of but you should, like Palantir, uh, which is actually not a public health firm at all. They're, uh, they're basically an intelligence firm. They cut their teeth running counterinsurgency data 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, their kind of more recent greater hits are uh, running tech for immigration and customs enforcement in the United States. Those are the people who run the camps on the border. Um, and, you know, I just don't know. I'm not sure that the public would want uh, a company like Palantir getting their hands on, on the contact graph. And we don't know that that's happening. I want to be clear. We don't know because, because quite frankly, they haven't said how those two things relate to one another, the extent to which they're joined up or they're not. We just don't know. Corey, you've uh, described the legal safeguards, the sorts of legal safeguards that we'd want to see in place. Can I just ask you about um, whether you think we need legislation, whether we, you think we need actually a clear legal basis and uh, how we're going to make sure that those detailed legal safeguards are actually going to be in place? Um, in Israel, of course, the Supreme Court has said that there needs to be legislation. France and Australia are both looking at legislation. Um, the, the, the closest analogy, it seems to me, is the ID cards um, legislation. Uh, and now that Parliament's back, there would be an opportunity for Parliament actually to consider, albeit it would need, it would need to be probably fast-track legislation, but there would be an opportunity for Parliament to give proper consideration to a, a detailed legal basis for doing this, including detailed procedural safeguards. Lillian Edwards was giving evidence this week to the um, Science and Technology Committee, um, and that's all good and important, but uh, it seems to me that the really important thing that Parliament ought to be doing at the moment is considering a bill um, for, to, to, to give all these things a legal basis and to give up, give the legislature the opportunity to discuss what those safeguards should be. Uh, what, what's your thoughts about that? I think it may well be necessary, particularly because some of the regulatory protections that we have tended to rely on have actually kind of fallen silent during the crisis. So, um, for example, data protection, like a whole bunch of exemptions have been uh, have been invoked. Uh, and certain kinds of uh, data rights enforcement have actually basically been suspended for the duration of the pandemic. As far as we can tell, the, the ICO have uh, for some purposes, kind of stood down. Um, so uh, actually, Professor Edwards um, has also put forward with some other academics a kind of draft of discussion bill, uh, uh, the kind of Coronavirus Safeguards Act, as they, as they call it, that I think the public law community in general actually should have a good look at and kind of kick around with um, and, and really take to, to Parliament for discussion. Because I think, I mean, the other thing I would say is that this issue, you know, in general, kind of privacy and just use of data and health data in particular, which, you, you know, in some ways, given how valuable it is, wholly apart from the privacy issues, are kind of the, you know, the kind of crown jewels of the NHS. All of these issues intersect. Um, I don't think that's a labor issue or a Tory issue. I actually think that everybody from, as it were, David Davis, the people in the Labour Party, would be concerned about it and want to debate it. So let's assume then that they listen, there's a, a legislative basis, it puts in protection, so data can only be used for, for example, for a limited purpose for a limited amount of time, uh, and that there are safeguards as to who the custodians are, then why shouldn't it be mandatory? I mean, at the moment during the lockdown, we are giving up lots of our rights because there's a health crisis, so I can't go out of the house and freely associate with who I'd like to freely associate with. I mean, run through a whole list of rights that are curtailed in which we're content to do so because we can see the justification we can see that it's proportionate it, it must be if it is the case that if there was universal data tracking it would be more efficient or at least the more people who are compelled to do it the more efficient it will be why shouldn't it be compulsory 
I mean, that's absolutely the case for any any mass surveillance situation, right? Like, you know, that's that's the argument that they, we always had about national security and counterterrorism, right? Like, it would be absolutely theoretically really quite useful for the government to have a camera in everybody's room everywhere, but that doesn't mean that that's socially or democratically acceptable. Um, but just to raise a pragmatic objection to making it mandatory, right? You're automatically excluding. Um, you're automatically excluding the very significant percentage of the population, including the, especially the over 55, right? The, the kind of a key risk group for coronavirus who don't have mobile phones. What are you going to do about them? Um, so uh, again, I think the, I, I, I don't want to denigrate the role that this can play in a wider policy response to the crisis, but uh, given that not everybody has a mobile phone, given some of the very real technical limitations of Bluetooth, uh, given that we aren't actually testing or hiring a suppose, the armada of contact tracers that we need, I hope that they do, but I, I, I don't see them yet. Um, let's not imagine that this is going to get us where we need to go. Yeah, I'm, I, I think Corey's entirely right. And if we're going to keep the discussion about this within a proper human rights framework, the first thing we have to ask is whether making something like this compulsory would be rationally linked to what you're trying to do. So yes, it's useful. Yes, it's a good, helpful public health response. And we ought to put a system that people trust and have buy-in because it's a damn sight less intrusive to your liberty than being stuck at home. But if you if you criminalise people who can't comply or those who have good rational reasons to be suspicious and you don't put a, a, a framework around it, I think you may find that you're doing something that doesn't work well and and is intrusive of liberties and and starts to to cause questions around what kind of society we live in i think this voluntarist response is is much better one i mean what do you guys think if they made it mandatory would that survive a judicial review i mean you're all public lawyers what do you reckon would that survive attack i'm not sure it would i'm not sure well i suspect that's an answer a question that can be answered on two different levels I mean, on the level of what the actual correct legal response is to that, I think it would depend, and it would depend not least upon what the whether there would be unequal outcomes, whether it would criminalise people unjustly, whether it was proportionate in all the circumstances. That would be the legal analysis. I'm not, and it would so the answer would depend on what the government, precisely how the government sought to introduce it. On an actual real level, I think that the government, in a time of crisis, whether it's war or a public health crisis, in reality, gets a lot of leeway from the courts, particularly in the early days of a crisis, when, as human beings, judges are trying to grapple with what's going on to a world that they thought they understood. Uh, and in the same way that citizens are often happy in the immediate term to give up their rights and regret them at their leisure afterwards, I think it's often the same with judges. That's certainly the, the case with, look at our case law that's created during the times of armed conflict you get very weak decisions in the early days of the armed conflict and then several years down the line the courts realize they've been way too um, obliging to the state and seek to correct it so that's my sense I don't know um, Helen and Murray what, what you feel yeah I, th I think courts are um, social social constructs they are staffed by people and they are susceptible to the to the waves of public opinion and I think judges especially at a moment when they are under fairly constant social attack for being too activist, would be would want to give a, a, a big you know, margin of discretionary judgment to 
to the primary decision makers who are making very, very difficult decisions that are literally a matter of life and death. But all the same, I think it, it, it's important to the framework um, and to democracy that we do we recognise these are really weighty considerations and they are worth giving up quite a lot of liberty for on a short-term basis, but only where we've established that this is a a measure that will help and only where um, it, it's, its proportionality is recognised by being really clearly limited in purpose, time and who is going to have access to this data. It's very much better, it seems to me, if it's the NHS that has access to the data not the wider state, and if there's a sunset clause on it and, and the purposes for which it's it's kept are really clear because there are all sorts of public health reasons where it'd be useful to track everyone all of the time, wouldn't it? But that, that's why I don't have a, a health tracking app on my smartwatch, or I don't have a smartwatch, but, you know, <laughs> I'm paranoid about these things. <laughs> Can I also ask Corrie whether you think that um, this particular debate we're having about um, use of data in public health emergencies reveals anything about the adequacy of the international data governance legal framework. Uh, do you think that, um, that, there's, that that's adequate? I mean, one of the problems for courts is that a lot of the law which applies here is, um, is fairly general. Of course, we've got international human rights law on privacy. Um, we've got GDPR. We've got other standards. But is there scope, do you think, for improvement of the international legal framework governing use of data, particularly in health emergencies? Uh, and do you think that's an area where there's space for some international leadership? Because we're clearly going to need a much more cooperative and collaborative approach if we're going to develop that sort of framework. Yes. I mean, let's let's go to Google, the Google and Apple tracing app and, and in general, the role of the platforms in kind of public life at this moment, right? As I say, um, you've got at the moment a kind of brewing contest between the Google and Apple system, which, you know, at the moment actually is more privacy preserving than, than what the UK government are pushing because it's decentralized, uh, but at the same time shows you just how much power uh, over the past some years we have actually effectively ceded to these companies because they basically through what they build into the operating system on your mobile phone um, kind of have the ability to, to say actually what the what the terms of an app could be. So one of the reasons, for example, uh, that Singapore's um, original Trace Together app um, didn't have massive uptake was that the terms of access to the OS meant that you could only run it uh, because you couldn't run Bluetooth in the background. You could only run it with your phone like upside down in your pocket and unlocked uh, because <laughs> it didn't work otherwise. And that totally drained the battery. So in other words, um, in, you know, I mean, in a way, you should think of Google and Apple and the UK is engaged in almost like a state to state negotiation process right now. I don't know who's going on top of that. Um, but they, they really can set the terms of access to the kind of public square and, and through their design choices. Um, really set kind of really quite important constraints or not uh, on liberty and privacy everywhere. So let's say for a minute that like billion, millions or billions of people opt into the Google Apple app instead, right? I mean, on the one hand, yay, wonderful, because, you know, we've gone for something that's decentralized and by engineering design has, is supposedly more privacy preserving. But who are we going to appeal to if something goes wrong? later down the line, which is your question about international kind of data governance, right? Um, you know, we have seen, look, GDPR is good and it is a start, um, but it is definitely not a panacea, particularly because most of the time we're looking at an individual complainant against, you know, the world's most powerful companies. Collective actions are at a very, very new and untested phase in GDPR. 
Um, and and two, the, the the remedies so far have been kind of slap on the wrist fines. There there haven't been kind of injunctive structural remedies to say no. Actually, you've got to stop this kind of problematic processing. Um, we've got to do much better. Can I ask you a wrap-up question, really, on this, Corey, which is the extent to which you think people are engaged with the impact that data gathering is having on um, human rights? And I ask that because earlier in the year I read um, the uh, Shoshana um, Zuboff book, Surveillance Capitalism, which was kind of, for me, sort of a kind of a jaw-dropper as you kind of realise the extent to which big data was not only obtaining the exhaust from uh, everything I'm looking at on the internet, but how it was using it then to try and influence what I was thinking when I was thinking things. And kind of running that past my kids who are very engaged with kind of human rights bits, kind of, you know, gender rights or environmental rights, they didn't seem that bothered by it. They just sort of said, well, that's, you know, we, we use their services. If they take our data, they take our data. And I'm, I'm wondering whether or not there's a generational difference um, here or whether or not actually you're finding that people across the range are getting increasingly engaged by the impact of data on our human rights. I don't think it's generational. I think it's the same problem that we've always had with privacy as an issue, which is that the vast majority of people don't feel a privacy violation at the moment that the information is collected. They actually only feel it at the motion, the moment that the information is weaponized toward a purpose that they don't like, right? Which is why Cambridge Analytica was such a big deal, right? It's like, you know, everybody had given over tons of information to Facebook for ages and ages and ages, but what they didn't like is that they saw a potential outcome, right? Which is propaganda to leading to Donald Trump. Um, and there they could see an actual real social harm potentially arising from the vast data mining that we've all supposedly consented to for the past 10, 15 years. And I think you're going to see that more and more because, you know, as Zuboff's book shows, that the markets for your data are expanding and they're also converging, right? So in other words, data that supposedly used to be collected for just ad targeting um, is of intense interest now to a host of actors, right? Insurance companies, like if your premium goes up, you're not going to like it. Uh, employers, if you suddenly find yourself unsuitable because of who is in your social graph, you're not going to like it. And of course, law enforcement, right? The cops have been trying to get Google location data, sometimes with some success for many, many years. Corey, that's fantastically interesting. And thank you um, so much for um, your analysis. Before you go, I have pre-warned you, but the... The tradition on the fifth podcast, as in all other four podcasts, is that all our guests have to give us a book recommendation. And it's a book that you would recommend to people who find themselves with a bit of time during lockdown. But what's your what's your recommendation? Yeah, I, I gave a little bit of thought. So this is May 1st. Of course, it's May Day. So I'm going to give you one that's a slightly lefty book. This is what I was reading just as I started to realize that we were really in potential trouble. So I was on a train in the Brenner Pass, which is the, the pass that runs from Italy to Austria, and we were stopped, bang in the middle for several hours with like masked Italian policemen holding us up until somebody's test results came back from who had got off the train sick a few stops before. Uh, it turned out they tested negative. I was fine. Everybody's fine. But anyhow, the book I was reading at that time is a book of philosophy by a guy in the United States called Martin Haglund called This Life. Uh, and it's um, it's a kind of a really moving piece of kind of secular humanism about basically the the core 
core value in life being how we all spend our finite time. Um, and it is a Marxist book. You, you kind of get, you might, you might not travel the full distance that Martin wants you to travel with him about kind of what really matters, what our social commitments say matter, um, and whether socialism is in fact the answer. But I kind of thought of it as sort of, you know, Martin Hagelin read the Grundrisse, so I don't have to. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it spans a huge range of, of, of sources from like uh, Aquinas to Marx to uh, Nausgaard, um, all kind of in a little bit of like reading the New York or London Review books. It's like, oh good, fantastic. I've had a kind of little snippet of a book that I kind of feel as if I should have read, uh, but I don't have to. But, in, in, but also, I think particularly now that we all do have this a bit of time to reflect, um, you know, reminds us that actually that is the, that's the core values that should motivate all of us. How do we spend that time? Cool. Brilliant. Thank you, Corey. Thanks so much for joining us. So, a completely fascinating Murray and Helen listening to Corey. I wonder if you just um, reflect for a moment on it. Helen, probably the same with you, but when I'm asked by kind of uh, young lawyers what I think the future is for human rights law and where the areas of particular interest are going to be, I always find myself saying it's going to be A, on climate and environment, and B, on data. And that's actually going to be where the next generation of human rights lawyers are going to be finding themselves trying to push boundaries. How do you see that? I I agree with that. Um, I'm deeply paranoid about the use of data, possibly because of having been involved in some of the stuff about Cambridge Analytica revelations and the Big Brother Watch challenge to the Snowden disclosures, it really does make me think this is absolutely where the big level change the shape of democracy challenges to human rights law lie, and obviously the climate. Um, But I also think we always need to concentrate, and Corey made this point, about the equality angle um, on this, because it's so easy for there to be things that the the majority put up with but have a really really serious impact um, on uh, marginalized people and people with a minority of power in society in particular. Murray what about the role of parliament here I mean we're obviously post Brexit um, we're going to be having to think for ourselves on these issues Um, what's your sense of the appetite amongst parliamentarians to kind of grapple with it or indeed the extent to which they even understand the issues? I think there's certainly uh, an appetite to to grapple with it, and I think we've, the the evidence sessions we've seen taking place in the last two or three weeks have shown the appetite on the part of uh, members in both houses. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me and what Corrie was talking about, and Helen asked her directly about this, is the importance of trust. And I think the government, unusually um, at the moment, uh, is acutely aware that the degree of public compliance that they need to be able to counter the virus um, is totally dependent on public trust. Um, and Parliament's role uh, is absolutely crucial in building that public trust, as, as well as open justice we talked about in our introduction, having confidence that the courts are doing things openly. And so I think that's one of the, the important things that Parliament needs to bear in mind, that it bears a heavy responsibility for uh, main, maintaining that public trust by doing its job properly. And I think one of the things that it needs to do in relation to the issues we've been discussing is to insist that the government brings forward a proper legal framework to enable it to do what it says it wants to do. Well, thanks both very much indeed uh, for this week. It's been fascinating listening to you and, of course, to Corrie. Uh, We'll be back uh, next week with another look at the impact that COVID is having on the rule of law. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Rachel Murray, and thank you for listening.